Good morning, friends. Are you content or discontented? Well, that's today's message. That's based on 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 35. You know, ever since the beginning of creation, when the first creatures came from the hand of God, there's always been someone, somewhere, unhappy. It all started with an angel named Lucifer, the brightest star of the heavenly firmament, who was not satisfied to be the apex of God's creation. He wanted something more than his assigned position as the greatest of all created beings. His discontent caused him to lead a rebellion against the Most High, and fully one-third of the angels joined with him in his abortive quest to overthrow the throne of the Lord. And for his rebellion, he and his followers were kicked out of heaven. And ever since that dark day, he has been known as Satan and the devil, and he has been the enemy of God. It was discontentment that made him do it, and discontentment has been one of his best weapons ever since. His earliest triumph came in the Garden of Eden when he sowed seeds of discontentment in Eve's unsuspecting heart. By misquoting the Lord, he made Eve think that God was somehow trying to cheat her, to keep her down, to keep her from becoming like God. So Eve took the fruit and ate, she gave it to Adam and he ate, and sin entered the human bloodstream. The seeds of discontentment brought forth the bitter harvest of disobedience, which led to the loss of paradise and the entrance of evil into our world. And you know the rest of the history. Since then, we've had been a pretty unhappy group of people. After Eden, we have never been fully satisfied with anything on earth. And we're still not satisfied thousands of years later. We always want something different. If we're young, we want to be older. If we're old, we sometimes wish we were younger. If it's old, we want something new. If it's new, we want something newer. It's small, we want something bigger. If big, we want something really big. If you got got 100 bucks, you want 200 And if you got 200 you want 500 If you have an apartment, you want a condo. If you have a condo, you want a house. And if you have a house, you want a bigger house or a newer house or a nicer house. Or maybe you want to just scale back down and live in the apartment again. If you got a job, we dream of a bigger job, a better job, a closer job with a bigger office, a better boss, better benefits, more challenge, bigger opportunity, nicer people to work for, and more vacation time. And if we're single, we dream of being married. And if we're married, well, you can finish that sentence yourself. None of this is unusual in any way. We were born discontented, and some of us will stay that way forever. And a certain amount of discontentment can be good for the soul. You see, it's not wrong to have dreams about what the future might hold. The hope of something better drives us forward and keeps us working, inventing, striving, creating, innovating. But there is a kind of discontentment that leads in a wrong direction. In fact, I'm going to give you five signs that discontentment is dragging us down spiritually. One of these is envy, the inability to rejoice at the success of other people. Another is uncontrolled ambition. The desire to win at all costs, no matter what it takes or who gets trampled in the process. A third one is a critical spirit. The tendency to make negative, hurtful, cutting remarks about other people. Another one is a complaining spirit. The disposition to make excuses and to blame others or bad circumstances for our problems. It's a refusal to take personal responsibility, an inability to be thankful for what we already have. And the fifth one is outbursts of anger. Angry words spoken because our expectations were not met. See, the discontented person looks around and says, I deserve something better than this. And because he's never happy and never satisfied, he drags other people down to the swamp with him. 
You know, we can't be happy because we will not be happy. We cannot be satisfied because we will not be satisfied. And such a person is truly a lost soul, miserable today and miserable tomorrow. So how do we overcome this? Well, I think the answer lies with some good theology. You see, sin always stems from wrong thinking about God, about ourselves, and about life in general. 1 Corinthians 7 contains some amazingly helpful insights about discontentment, even though the word itself is never used. This chapter is unique in that it was written by Paul in answer to some specific questions put to him by the believers in the church at Corinth. Now, we know in a general way that the Corinthians ask about marriage and divorce and singleness. The middle section of this chapter contains some excellent teaching on these topics that applies directly to the question of contentment versus discontentment. But for the purposes of this message, we're going to look together at three principles that will help us face and overcome the problem of discontentment. Here's principle number one. Change is not wrong, but it is not always an improvement. See, this principle comes from Paul's teaching in verses 25 to 28. Because of the present crisis, he he advises everyone to stay as they are. Evidently, that phrase refers to some pressure on the church in Corinth. Now, because it was a cosmopolitan seaport town, Corinth was known for an immoral brand of idolatry. Converts to Christ faced enormous moral and spiritual and cultural pressure to compromise their faith. And perhaps there was a wave of local persecution that threatened the very existence of that church. Now, although we don't know the particulars, Paul's advice is very clear. Don't make any drastic changes. In other words, stay as you are. When the seas are raging, it's not the right time to be changing ships. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. And then he adds a very practical word in verse 28. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin married marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Well, the sense of this passage is pretty clear. It's to stay as you are, especially if you're single. I mean, don't feel it's necessary to be married. But if you want to be married, and if you can find someone who wants to marry you, that's a crucial requirement. And if both of you are Christ followers, go ahead, get married. It's not wrong. But I also want to tell you, don't be so starry-eyed that you entered marriage with your eyes closed. As one man said, they say love is blind, but marriage is an eye-opener. He was right about that one. I mean, don't think that marriage will make you happy or solve your problems or bring you closer to God or make you a better person or fulfill your dreams. It won't because it can't. Yet I want to tell you that marriage is a good and noble and holy and honorable. That's what Hebrews 13.4 tells us. But if you're miserable being single, how can you be sure you'll suddenly be happy being married? See, the happiest married people are generally those who are also happy while being single. Changing your marital status doesn't guarantee a change in your happiness or your contentment or your satisfaction with life. Discontented singles aren't usually the best candidates for a happy marriage. Here's principle two. Remember that you're a visitor on earth, not a permanent resident. I want you to notice the two key phrases that bracket verses 29 to 31. The first one is, the time is short. That's in verse 29. And the second is, the world is passing away. That's verse 31. What Paul is saying is that no one lives forever on planet earth. And no matter how long you live, you're going to be dead a lot longer. And if you doubt that, just check out the nearest cemetery. 
The second phrase comes from a Greek expression that means something like, the world is but a shadow of reality. So the time is short, the world is passing away, and what follows from this truth? Well, one of the commentators I, I looked at said that we should live with holy indifference to the things of this world. And verses 29 to 31 flesh this out in five ways. Number one, regarding intimate relationships. Verse 29, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Now, there's a verse you don't hear quoted at many weddings. It, it simply means enjoy your marriage, but don't make your marriage the most important thing in your life. Also, regarding afflictions, verse 30, those who mourn as if they did not. And the third one, regarding pleasure, those who are happy as if they were not. Now, Paul doesn't mean to suggest that we shouldn't weep or that we shouldn't rejoice or enjoy life, but he does mean that life is much more than so sorrow or joy. Now, maybe we could say it this way. When a loved one dies, don't mourn so much that you make people think that you don't believe in heaven. When you're having an enjoyable time, don't laugh so much that you make people think that you don't believe in hell. In all you do, don't forget about eternal realities. The fourth point is regarding employment. Verse 30 says, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. And finally, regarding earthly concerns. Verse 31, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. In other words, friends, use the world, enjoy the world, live in the world, work in the world, buy, sell in the world, but don't let the world rule your life. Be careful lest the things you possess end up possessing you. So enjoy life, live it to the fullest, take advantage of every moment, but don't indulge yourself so much that you lose your focus on what really matters. So I guess the message is this, don't be preoccupied with things that don't matter. Figure out what really matters in life and then go and do it. As the old gospel song said, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I mean, ponder these sobering words of our Lord in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You know, when we read those verses, it's kind of hard not to stumble over the word hate because to us, it implies some sort of hostility. But the key rests in the phrase, even his own life. Now, it must be something like this. Don't regard your life itself as something that must be preserved at all costs. Leave the future in God's hands. I mean, you may be called to do something that seems reckless for the sake of the kingdom. And others will not understand it, may even think you kind of foolish. At the same time, it's true for the closest relationships of life. Others may not understand and may even think you hate your own family. It's not true, of course, but it may seem that way because of your sold-out service for Jesus. In light, in that light, let's remember verse 29. It says, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Now, I think widows know what this means. L live knowing that your marriage cannot last forever. Most likely, one of you will outlive the other. So live in the light of that day. Marriage is a temporary blessing at best. Same goes for raising children. Many couples even divorce when the children leave home because they built their lives around something they could not last. I mean, you came into the world single. You're going to go out single because your marriage ends the moment you die. Neither marriage nor children can give final meaning to your life. If you want this truth in one sentence, here it is. Hold lightly what you value greatly because you can't keep it forever anyway. 
A few weeks ago, I reread the story of Jim Elliott and the death and his death in January 1956, along with five missionaries who sought to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians of Ecuador. They were killed by the Akas because the Indians feared the white men and thought they had come to harm them. But the missionaries knew the danger they were facing and took as many precautions as possible. But in the end, they were killed, and from their death came a groundswell of young people volunteering for missionary service. In her book, Jim's Wife, Elizabeth Elliot, the book is called Through Gates of Splendor, she tells of the frank discussions that she and Jim had about the dangers of making the first face-to-face contact with the AUKUS. At one point he said to her, quote, If it is the will of God, darling, I am ready to die for the salvation of the AUKUS. End of quote. Now both sides of that prophetic statement came true. In the years to come, God used the death of those missionaries to bring many of the AUKUS to faith in Jesus. Or for some of you Lutherans, as Luther wrote in A Mighty Fortress, Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Now here's principle number three. The most important thing is to give undivided devotion to the Lord. Now this principle comes from verses 32 to 35 where Paul points out that singles have freedoms that those who are married don't have. You see, singles can serve the Lord without as many earthly distractions. But those who are married are divided in the sense that they must and should give attention to the needs of their spouse. It's only right that a husband should care about his wife and it's natural and normal that a wife should concern herself with the needs of her husband. This is right and good, but the energy devoted to those worthy causes is time and effort that might have been devoted to the service of the Lord. Now, to say it that way makes it sound as if Paul believes singleness is more righteous than marriage or that marriage is less godly than being single. But, friends, that's not the case. You can serve the Lord effectively either way. But there is an undeniable truth in Paul's point. Certainly, every married person knows that marriage is both a blessing and a heavy burden, a burden of care and concern, of time and money and prayers and thought and tears and love and energy. To be truly married means giving of yourself unstintingly to the one you love. If you are single, that time and energy could be directed, uh, directly applied to the service of others in the name of Jesus. And I think that's Paul's point. He wishes us to understand that the greatest calling in life is serving the Lord with an undivided heart. And singles have an easier time of that if they will apply their hearts in the right direction. Now, I don't know how many singles are going to listen to this message, but I want to direct a few words to you. It is this, use your time to serve the Lord. If you don't use your days to serve the Lord, you're just wasting this part of your life. I mean, don't spend your days pining away, dreaming about marriage and hoping against hope that the man or woman of your dreams will miraculously appear on a white horse to rescue you. As the only God knows whether you'll ever be married someday, leave it in his hands. And don't spend your waking hours scheming about being married. Use your time and energy to serve the Lord. That doesn't mean it's wrong to want to be married or to plan to be married or to ask God for a marriage partner. Such thoughts are normal and good, but don't let those noble thoughts become the all-consuming passion of your life. Serve the Lord and let your future rest in his capable hands. And friends, if you are married, give thanks to God for your husband or wife. Love the mate that God has given you. Pray for them. Look for ways to build them up spiritually. Let your marriage be a part of your service to the Lord. So the question comes out of this, do you believe in God or don't you? 
Do you believe in God who will give you what you need right now so that you can serve him right where you are? There is a sense in which when you complain and dwell in discontentment, at that point you are no, that you no longer believe in God. That is, on one level you certainly do believe in God, but by your discontented complaining, you're denying the truth that you claim to believe. If you can't do everything you would like to do, you can joyfully accept your situation as being from the hand of the Lord. You can always pray and praise. You can always sing in your heart to the Lord. You can always refresh yourself in the streams that flow forth from the heart of God. Now, certain practical applications flow from all of this. One is that you should just bloom where you are planted. Another would be that let God define your life, not earthly circumstances. Or a third one, don't expect change to make you happy. And fourth, never forget that you won't be here forever. Now, of those four points, the second one seems most fundamental. We fall into a complaining spirit precisely because we have chosen to let our circumstances, and that includes our relationships, define who we are. If we define ourselves first and foremost as being single and if we desperately want to be married, it's quite likely that our self-definition will lead us to discontentment. But if we decide to let God define who we are, then we can be in good or bad circumstances, as we all are sooner or later, and still find the contentment we seek. The most practical application is this. Do God's will where you are, and the rest will take care of itself. That doesn't mean you won't have hard decisions to make, and it doesn't mean that you won't slog through some very tough days, and it may mean that you face many months or years of adversity. But whether those tough tough, tough times are short or long, our only recourse is to get up each day and do God's will the best we can do it on that particular day. If we do that, then tomorrow will take care of itself. God will see to that. That brings me to my last very important spiritual truth, and it's this. The only thing that matters is knowing Jesus, and through him, growing closer to God day by day. Nothing else matters, friends. If we, knew God, if we know God in Christ, then we are of all people most blessed and highly favored. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's in Ephesians 1, 3, by the way. And if we don't know Christ, then the rest of life won't satisfy our deepest longings anyway. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.